Hello and welcome to our podcast. This is Brother Elliot Maloney, Professor of Sacred Scripture at St. Vincent Seminary in Latrobe, PA. This first talk will be an overall introduction to the Gospel of Mark for preaching in the upcoming Cycle B, which, as you know, starts in Advent. It is important at the very beginning of our considerations to realize how great was the accomplishment of our evangelist, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Almost everyone now considers this author, whom we call Mark, to be the first writer of any gospel, and that this gospel, or some form of it at any rate, was a major source, actually the basis, for both the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. They are re-editions of it. True, they each re-edited it for their own purposes, but they used 80% and 60% of Mark, respectively, uh, uh, and kept to Mark's basic one-year outline. The Gospel called, according to John, probably did not use Mark directly, but it shares much of the Jesus tradition in it. Back to our gospel, we should first of all try to identify who wrote the gospel called According to Mark. Well, most scholars say that we actually do not know who this writer was. In fact, all four Gospels were written anonymously and were only given their so-called apostolic authorship at the beginning of the second century. By this time, the need was felt to link each of the canonical four Gospels to an apostolic figure for validity. It was the author we call Mark who first took it upon himself to compile a life in the ancient Greco-Roman literary world called a bios, this life of Jesus, in order to assist his community, which was obviously suffering great oppression. In his gospel, he was able to pro pro portray Jesus' ministry as an example of selflessness in suffering, as God's way of dealing successfully with the evils of the world, paradoxical as that may sound. In order to show how Jesus taught this, Mark used various sources, sketching out as if in a single year the whole history of Jesus' public ministry, from his baptism in the Jordan to the news of his resurrection from the empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. Mark has no story about the origins of Jesus, as we see in Matthew and Luke's infancy narratives, and he has no resurrection appearance stories like the other Gospels. His originally, original account ends abruptly 
with great dismay of the women at the tomb in Mark 16, verse 8. And the women, quote, And the women said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The three short appearances of Jesus in our Bibles, in labeled chapter 16, verses 9 to 20, are a later addition made to complete the story. The church does consider them inspired, even though they were written by a different later author. Now, there is a tradition, starting in the second century only, that attributes this gospel to a certain person named Mark. He is called, in this text, the Hermenutes, or the interpreter of St. Peter. This tradition appears in the sayings of the Lord, or oracles of the Lord, a text that was handed on only in fragmentary fashion and only in the 4th century by the church historian Eusebius. Interestingly, Eusebius himself mentions that he has a low opinion of the accuracy of Papias in other matters. Papias claims in these fragments to have heard it from the presbyter John, who supposedly was close to the father we call Polycarp of Smyrna in Asia Minor. Okay, this makes Eusebius's account a fourth-hand tradition, albeit one that was picked up by Irenaeus and other church fathers, but all of these are most likely, most likely based on the very same uncertain Papias tradition, the name Papias uh, of a bishop in Asia Minor somewhere. The mark then, as, as the tradition then keeps developing, the mark mentioned in Papias was thought to be the mark whom the author of 1 Peter calls Mark my son in 1 Peter 5, 13. This person's identity is then conflated with other marks in St. Paul and in the Acts of the Apostles, and then the tradition is picked up by Irenaeus and others. This is a very unlikely scenario historically. Most scholars, again, give it small historical value. Mark, as a matter of fact, was a very common first century name. We're probably dealing with two or I would think even three different persons named Mark in the New Testament. But there is a lot that we can say about our evangelist. Now, for tradition, for tradition's sake, we will still call him Mark and use the masculine gender. But this is not absolutely sure, but this, as a, as a convention, we'll call him Mark. He was probably an Aramaic speaker who wrote Greek, but it was very deeply influenced by the old Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, and we call that the Septuagint version, right, in Greek. 
This evangelist was long thought to be a clumsy writer uh, because of the strong influence of Old Testament Greek and because of the way he repeats important words uh, and often draws out the details of a story by repetition. But modern opinion has come to appreciate this as literary techniques, conscious devices by Mark to help his listening audience. After all, they were illiterate. They were only hearing the gospel. Moreover, scholars are now acknowledging that Mark was in fact a very clever author. The community for which he wrote was evidently a somewhat traumatized group. You can tell by all of the, the details of the difficulties that Jesus has. This was probably a Galilean community Okay, not the Jerusalem community, but the Galilee community, fleeing to Syria from the Roman army that ravaged Galilee and destroyed on its way to destroying Jerusalem in 70 of the Common Era. Mark wanted, above all, to show his community that their suffering was not the result of God's forgetfulness of them or of divine displeasure with them, but part of the difficult path of those who would, quote, take up their cross and follow me, as Jesus says in 9.34. The idea that Mark's gospel was written in Rome might be based on an early connection of the gospel to St. Peter, who, of course, famously arrived in Rome to support the Christians suffering under the persecution of Nero in the mid-60s of the first century. Peter certainly figures large in this gospel. After the introduction of Jesus, the first episode is the call of Peter. And in the last words of the angel at the tomb, single out St. Peter. So while we ha do not have a firm identification of the evangelist, we do know that he was the first to put together a gospel. This text that he entitled, the first verse is the title, Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the first verse of the text, 1-1. Mark had a special fascination with the disciple Peter, most likely to shore up the faith of his own, Mark's, weak and fleeing community. If the great hero and martyr, because Peter certainly turned out to be that, of the persecution of Nero that everybody knew about, if he had such a rocky start to his journey of faith as Mark portrays, then other disciples' weaknesses would be understandable. More importantly, they would surely be forgiven by God, as Peter obviously was. This special attention to Peter was probably enough for later tradition to put together the person named Mark from 1 Peter 5.13 as the writer of the gospel. So our text 
turned out to be very helpful, not only to its original refugee community in Syria, but also later in Rome to the community suffering the aftermath of Nero's persecution. Those Roman Christians also needed a gospel that made some sense of the suffering that, as expected, uh, of the cross that they might have to bear. Well, I like the way uh, Irish Catholic scholar Wilfred Harrington sums up the gospel's plot as centered on Jesus' challenge to the religious Jewish authorities. That is, the Pharisees, on the one hand, a lay group of, of followers of the law, but especially the temple priesthood, who are opposed to Jesus' authority to inaugurate the kingdom. Only they had the authority with God's religion, they thought. Probably we can sum up by saying that Mark is telling the story of Jesus who was specially anointed by the Holy Spirit, Messiah uh, in Hebrew, specially anointed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel of God. Look at the beginning of the gospel in chapter 1. Verse 14, Jesus himself proclaims, This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The content of this gospel, or good news, is what the Greek word euangelion, gospel, means, good news, is that God is bringing in a renewal of God's presence to Israel for all now who repent of their selfish lives and believe in the kingdom, that is, to believe in God's being king, God's power to save, especially in Jesus. But in spite of Jesus' miracles of healing and his power over demons and his miraculous control over nature, Jesus' gospel does not convince people. The great crowds are always looking to get something from Jesus, a healing or or something like that. And he simply cannot prevail over human beings who do not believe in him, who are opposed to him. Mark states laconically that it, at, at Nazareth, he could do no mighty deed there. He could not do a mighty deed there. And he marveled at their lack of faith. That's in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. When Jesus tries to convey this necessity of complete selfishness, selflessness to his special twelve, their spokesperson Peter shows their unbelief at such a plan for Jesus as Messiah, much less for their own salvation. And the denouement of the story is the radical acceptance by Jesus of the fate of his fate at the hands of the enemies of the kingdom. He does this symbolically at the Last Supper, where he explains in sacrament, in ritual, that his death is the sacrifice 
that inaugurates the new covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, he says. He's shown in personal agony in Gethsemane, in what we call the agony in the garden, in prayer to his father. Please, let this cup pass away, but if it can't, then I have to do it. He then makes the self-giving sacrifice of his life as the result of human refusal on the part of both Jewish leaders and the Roman overlords. The refusal to accept God's holy reign, God's kingdom, which Jesus obediently as God's son presents to them who so brutally reject him. The sad story comes to a climax with Jesus' tortured death, a death that is a total gift that finally actually reveals the great secret of God's power. Here it is. Evil can only be overcome by a faith-filled and loving person who, relying on God's almighty power, can absorb that evil, not trying to crush it or pass it on to some other victim, but somehow absorbing it, consuming it, making it disappear from reality at no matter what the personal cost. This is the cost of discipleship, that uh, wherein the followers of Jesus are called to imitate him in giving up all for the sake of others. As Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give up his life as a ransom for many. That's in chapter 10, verse 45. Mark ends his gospel at 16.8. Here the women fled the tomb, seized with trembling and bewilderment, as the text says. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's the end of the gospel in its original form. What Mark has done here is very clever. He shows the followers of Jesus in complete disarray, the men having already gone away into hiding, and the women now fleeing in bewilderment. Thus, Mark presents his readers with the stark reality of following Jesus, just as they were experiencing in their time, somewhere around 70 AD in Syria, probably. You have his promise that he will be going just ahead of you in your own Galilee, says the angel in verse 7 of that 16 of the last chapter. But the present oppression and fearful situation is nothing new. Like Jesus, we must pick up our cross to follow him. For, as Jesus says in 8.35, Whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save his life. 